Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. Because doing good work takes time. I'm Chris Kreitschow. And I'm Stephen Caradini. This is Season 4, Episode 11, and today we're going to talk about art and protest around the world. As a note, this is the first of two special episodes we're recording live with a class of students at North Carolina State University. So later in the episode, you'll actually get to hear from them. We're pretty excited about it. We're also pretty excited about this topic. We are going to be talking specifically about one issue, but also larger ethical sphere surrounding the ideas of art and protest and how much art can protest. But to start off with, we're going to tackle the uh, Israeli and Palestinian conflict because we are brave like that. We're brave (laughs) and it's globalization. So we're going to do that. Um, In particular, there was a New York Times article recently that talked about the type of music that Palestinians have been making recently in response to and encouraging in some ways the stabbings of Israelis which has become a particular problem in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in that normal people have started to stab other normal people, um, which is a particular problem if you're trying to have peace between two nations when even, you know, there there isn't really even armies interacting anymore. It's literally day-to-day people are attacking each other. So this is a giant problem. And what's made worse and what intrigued Chris and I is that there is a type of Palestinian music that is going around that they are developing and making that is essentially encouraging this sort of activity. Um, One of the songs mentioned in the New York Times article is called Stab Stab, which doesn't get uh, any more blunt than that is the technical word that they use in the article. Technical. Technical, yes. Um, and then one is called Intifada of Knives, etc., etc. So we're interested in how does this art work? Is this art, is it protest? How much can art protest? And how do we understand and deal with stuff that is just kind of abhorrent to us in some ways? Yeah. And one of the things to establish from the get-go, we're not going to try to tackle the particular solutions or problems even in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. This is a six decades old and going on problem. This has deep roots in other things going on in the Middle East, dating back to the World War I era. This is an incredibly complex, knotty, thorny issue. And we think it is fair to say that substantial atrocities have been committed on both sides. We think it is fair to say that this response by Palestinians, to pick up a theme we touched on last week, is understandable. It is, in that sense, reasonable, which is to say that there are reasons for it. But, as we'll trace out a bit, we don't think it's necessarily justifiable. We certainly don't think the stabbings in the streets are justifiable. But, even the pieces of art where ethics can feel and may actually be somewhat murkier, we don't think it's justifiable. And the reasons why are tricky, because, again, there are legitimate reasons why Palestinians might feel these things. And though we don't have a specific example to touch on on the Israeli side, neither of us would be surprised to find Israelis similarly making protest art or even propagandistic art having to do with this conflict. Because on the one side, you have a very small nation that feels like it's surrounded by enemies who want to, as one hostile to Israel leader put it half a decade ago, drive them into the sea. 
and a country which has literally been fighting to survive since the day it became a nation. But on the other side, you have a bunch of people who, for good or ill, for things that they may or may not have had anything to do with, have been treated pretty badly by that nation state and live in pretty bad conditions and have had things like their buildings come and torn down while they're inside them. There are serious and legitimate grievances on both sides. And so we're not going to be as interested in the ethics of the situation. Right, um, because that's kind of beyond us. That's beyond a half hour and beyond winning slowly in some ways. But we are interested in the ethics of the art. Right. How do we respond? And so in particular, the first thing that Chris and I were tossing back and forth is what do you do with propaganda versus art? So propaganda is a pretty... Um, established concept. It's visual or audio materials that are expressly put forward for political purposes. These can be benign political purposes. They can even be good political purposes. Often it's associated with bad political purposes. And art has had a thorny relationship with this concept (laughs) for a very, very long time. Art, on the other hand, is perceived as art. It's things that are made in response to the human condition as an adequate response and an expression of what's going on in the lives of the artist as well as the lives of the community that the artist is in. However, the line gets murky when the lives of the artist and the community that the art is in overlap with some really difficult politics and with potentially desires to make some of these propagandistic statements and whether they feel that they are making propagandistic statements or whether they're making art themselves. So they may feel like they're making art, but other people think that they're making propaganda. They may feel like they're making propaganda and it may be misinterpreted as art out of its context, which has happened before. It's sometimes easier to see some of these tensions by taking a step back and looking at things that are not in our current situation, that are not part of world events today, that probably none of us have a direct connection to. On the negative side, it's very easy to look back at some of the propagandistic movies that came out of Nazi Germany in the 1930s. These are renowned in many cases as being extraordinarily effective pieces of cinema, of using the medium well, of advancing and pioneering techniques that have since been adopted and used in non-propagandistic cinema. Mm-hmm. They're extremely technically competent, in other words. Also, and, Birth of a Nation, right. a similarly propagandistic film, yep. is heralded as a really important moment in cinema, even though it's horrible. <laughs> yeah, and so you look at these things and you say, okay, we don't, we don't want anything to do with either of these pieces of propaganda, and yet... And yet, there is a substantial and significant artistic value to them. They've shaped the way that we've made art since then. Or, to look at positive examples, you can look at the writings of someone like Alexander Solzhenitsyn coming out of the Soviet Union, or the work of many of the composers doing work under the Soviet Union in the course of the 60s and 70s especially. Men and women who were officially allowed only to compose certain kinds of works that were very pro-Soviet, that were literally Soviet propaganda in the form and the content, and yet found ways to subvert that in the form of their art. And Some of that is some of the most sublime work in 20th century composed music. How do we think about those things? Because it's not a clear cut and dry, this is propaganda, that's art, in any of these scenarios. And frankly, looking at the sort of inciting article and the inciting pieces of music we're looking at today, it's not clear, it's not cut and dried. What are they doing as an art form? And yet, 
are they putting that art to purposes that we would say are morally, ethically out of bounds? And the answer is going to be yes. And so this sort of takes us into the second major question. Okay, we can talk, and what we'll find is that it's difficult at best to come up with a clear demarcation between the two, especially because we tend in our current cultural milieu to think that subtlety and coming at things in mildly or even substantially but subversive ways that use an existing form but just sort of undercut the direct message by some of the other elements in it, we tend to like that. But as Stephen pointed out as we were planning the episode, if you look at Picasso's Guernica, it's not so much subversive or subtle. Yeah, there's no subtlety going on there. It's like, really a, obvious what's going on there's there. A, there's a statement being made, and you know what it is. And it's political. Um, yeah. And yet I don't think we would call it propaganda. Right. But we may have, if we were in that time period, right. responding to that piece of art in that particular way, or we may have called it propaganda and art because he was already an established artist, and so he was now making a statement. Um, not that he wasn't making statements <laughs> before, but... So there's all these historical boundaries, there's these cultural boundaries that we don't live in any of these areas that we're talking about, which right. we continue to acknowledge because it's still true. And so we have to think about things in a measured way. We can't have all the answers because we don't have all the cultural context. Right. However, there are things that we can do to respond even as outsiders. And this pushes on some of the things that we've talked about before, particularly in reading charitably. But there's also a, a way that when you're looking at art that you don't like – you have to read generously, like think about the context. However, if you're on the side of the people who are making the violent propaganda, you're going to have to think critically about art that is on your side. Yep. So these are flip sides of the same coin. You have to think about, okay, I'm going to read generously things I disagree with, but I have to read critically things that I agree with. Otherwise, I'm only doing half of the work. <laughs> yeah. And to make this a bit lighter of an example, Stephen and I fairly regularly take things that we sort of might ideologically agree with. We're, we're both Christians, as our listeners know, and we have both encountered lots of contemporary Christian music and film. fiction. Christian and film. film. and Facing the Giants, man. It's really bad. It's really, really, <laughs> really bad. Really, really bad. So there are times when you might be able to look at a, a piece of something that's ideologically aligned with you and just say, No. I have a critical response to this. <laughs> Please stop. <laughs> but where it gets hard is where you think the art is good and being done well, and yet maybe you want to say, Hmm, is there a way in which this art, even though it's being done well, and even though I agree with the major premises of it, mm -hmm. are there still things to critique in it? Are there still things that are not good in it? Are there still things which I can look at as an insider and say, maybe the way this communicates to people who aren't me, who don't agree with my worldview, who don't share the same set of presuppositions or the same basic story about the world and the way it works, maybe the way these things communicate I need to reevaluate. And that's hard. It takes a lot of humility. It does. This is also basically the story of how people read C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, which is like <laughs> people read themselves into it all the time. But if you actually go back and like read it, you're like, this is That's weird. Not what he's yeah. This is different. <laughs> I don't know about this. And that's the way it is with a lot of C.S. Lewis's oeuvre. There's a lot of things in there that people take one look at one thing 
potentially Narnia, and they're like, yeah, he's my boy. That's right. <laughs> and there's a lot going on there. And so we want people to think critically about the stuff that they agree with. And that's part of the way that we can kind of bridge this divide between art that we don't like and art that we like that other people may not like. Right. And kind of meeting in the middle at reading generously and reading critically. And then you can kind of come to some conversations in the middle where you're like, yeah, I do. I do see that. I do see that, but I also like this other part. <laughs> and another person might say, well, yeah, I, I guess I can see where you would like that, but I also hate this other part. And that looks like discussion. Right. Um, and, you know, we've had two episodes now where we talk about how to disagree well. And I think this is a, potentially a piece that we haven't talked about in how to disagree yeah. well is, you know, you have to read generously, but also be critical of your own thing. You can't just say, hey, this is my jam. You should, <laughs> you should do my jam too. <laughs> but of course, there's a a tension and a challenge here because there's a limit to that. Right. At the end of the day, stab, stab, whatever else is going on and whatever other cultural justifications or reasons there might be offered for it, eh, not so much. It's, and It's violent. It's, it's violent and it's inciting violence, violence and yeah. it's promoting violence. And we can look to our own culture and see whatever the genre, there are places within American culture where we see active promotion of violence, sometimes against just minorities, sometimes from within minority communities. Like, it doesn't matter. This is a human problem, and it's a serious problem, and it's one that we have to be willing to stop and say, no, I draw the line there. All the reasons why you might be inclined to do that are, I get them, I understand them, they like we talked reasonable. about. They're reasonable in that sense. But They're no, this isn't a justifiable response, even in the world of art. And that line, there, it's, that, that line is hard. It's going to differ for different people, too. Right. So, different ethical systems are going to lead to different responses about where the line is or what it is. Right. And there's some art that uses violence metaphorically mm -hmm. um, and in very purposeful ways. There's some that co-opt the language of violence to make different statements about the world. Yep. Um, and these are all contextually bound. But in some senses, there is a real situation on the ground where... This particular language is interpreted in a way that causes people to be encouraged to go stab other people. Right. And so for Chris and I, that's kind of the line right there is that like there's <laughs> there's metaphorical violence, there's violence in fiction, there's violence in film and we're cool. But like inciting people directly to violence as a function of the contextualized situation that that music is being presented in, that's a lot of qualification. But that's a real place where Chris and I say, even as people who are all about freedom of speech that is a line. Yeah. And, and it's tricky because up to that point, there's a lot of blurry gray areas. But we say, no, that's a line and we should not cross it. And there are people listening to this podcast who are going to say, like, um, mm, I'm uncomfortable with that. That's not where my line is. And maybe it's way farther over on what freedom of speech should be protected. And maybe it's way farther over on, like, look, violence in art is a no. Right. And there are people who believe that. Right. And, and that's, it's, it's easy to see why. It's reasonable. Yeah. It Maybe even justifiable. So now things get really interesting. So one of the things that we want to do in this episode is let the students of media writing, COM 267, go Wolfpack, um, <laughs> respond, um, have questions, comments, statements about what we have said. What, what we would like to avoid, given how contentious some of these issues can be, is discussion of, say, the Israel-Palestine conflict. 
it's going to get people way hot and bothered one way or the other because it's so contentious. Let's kind of stick to the the topic at hand rather than the, the yeah. thing we use to get into the topic. Let's yeah. talk about art and protest and propaganda, how those fit together, where the lines are, how do you draw your line? Why do you think they chose this particular art form to express mm. how they felt about the conflict? That's a great question that we actually thought a little about, <laughs> but we didn't include in the body. So I study music um, and write about music. And so part of it, I think, is because of the technological ease of recording right. and the technological ease of distribution, um, both of which have become way less difficult in the last 15 years. Right. Um, with the advent of cheap computers, cheap software, pirating sources, um, good hardware that isn't a million dollars. There's a lot of ways that people can decide, I'm going to do this, and then they can do it, sound relatively to completely professional, yeah. and then get it out on burn CDs to various record stores, and then that's it. So there's, a, there's an ease technologically that I think promotes this sort of work, but I think there are other factors too. Yeah, I think one of the other s substantial factors is how the balance in the trade is between that ease and how emotionally affecting music is. I think we've all probably had the experience or most of us have had the experience where you hear a piece of music and it just, it grabs you and you're just sucked in. And maybe you've had a piece of music that makes you cry unexpectedly. Maybe you've had one that makes you mad. Maybe you've had one that reminds you of that relationship that went sour or that reminds you of that relationship that was so great. Music is very affecting. It touches us very deeply at an emotional level. And we also know that music in historical context has always, probably for some of those reasons, been a part of uh, warfare, been a part of calls to action because it can be a part of stirring you up and pumping you up that I'm going to go do this thing. And so those things can sort of become, in good ways or bad ways, anthems. I mean, we think mm -hmm. about some mm -hmm. of the anthemic work that came out of both the anti-slavery and the civil rights movement. Some of just the most incredible music that we have is, as our history as Americans, came out of those things and out of responses to those and calls to stand up and do what was right in the face of it. That kind of singing together and marching together or listening and pumping yourself up to go do something is really powerful and evocative. And so I think you'll find people doing that with music. And then you couple that with the empowerment that you have from relatively inexpensive technology to let you record and cost that is negligible to let you distribute, whether via CDs, whether via the Internet. Mm -hmm. The cost of distribution goes very quickly to zero. And so that I think the combination of those two things. Is and I think it's also very mobile. Like you yeah. can sing it. You don't have to carry a canvas with you or carry a sign with you. Yep. You can with your phone, you can play it very loudly. Um, you don't have to look at it. So that's you can also carry videos with you, but you have to look at it. Um, so it's sort of an ambient way that you can be engaging with art and engaging with whatever else is going on, which is why people walk around with headphones on and they don't walk around with canvases, um, you know, it's in general. I mean, do people do pick it? That's an important right. way that people do it. But I think it, the mobility plus the technology plus the, um, the effectiveness is, is a, in large part why some of this has happened the yeah. way it has. And that goes to sort of the broader reason that propaganda works and that propagandistic art 
works. And it's because art forms can move us. Music can move us. Uh, cinema can move us. Mm-hmm. Books can move us. Mm-hmm. To take a ridiculous example, I mean, I remember reading Bridge to Terabithia when I was 10 oh, or something. Oh, me and too. Weeping my eyes out because yeah. it can move you. But art can do that. And that's why it is so tempting to co-opt it for these kinds of purposes. Yep. Great question. Yeah. Other questions? So in America, there's songs all the time about people shooting one another. And we kind of just don't even think twice about it, listen to it every day. Why is it so different over there about stabbing and stuff like that? Right. That is a huge and important question. And my answer is we really, really should. I think, and I I sort of alluded to that earlier, but I think there is an awful lot of that. Uh, whether that's I'm going to, at the sort of least threatening level, the country song about keying up someone's car, to the most threatening level of a country song of I'm going to blow your brains out, kind of uh, just to pick sort of the, the easy one that came to mind because I've heard both of those. But we could see that across, as I mentioned earlier, lots of genres, lots of cultural backgrounds here. And I think that's where we have to be able to step back and say, hang on, we do need to be critical and we ought to engage. And that's that's a place where I think we have blinders on. I think in Stephen and I expressed where our line is in terms of the art of this is the hard black and white line and you're across it. You've, you've made a moral move that you ought not. But I have a lot of discomfort with a lot of things that are in the kind of gray area before that for precisely that reason. And a lot of film, a lot of music, I think, does have the effect of stirring up those kinds of things in ways that are ethically dubious at the very best and unconscionable in many cases at the worst. And so I think that's a place where we do need to invest our own critical eye toward our own culture and to stop being persuaded just by the familiarity of those things that Mm -hmm. they're okay. I have a slightly different stance than Chris on this because even though we both have the same hard line, I have a much more charitable stance towards the gray. Um, And I think that particularly the context in which the music is deployed is important. Yeah. So, and I agree with that, even though we land on different, right, different, different variations, applications. Of, right? Yeah. Um, but so, a Chief Keef song in South Chicago is a very different song than a Chief Keef song yep. played in suburban Oklahoma, where I grew up. Um, they have different social understandings. People can listen in Oklahoma and be like, "This is a mad trap beat, and I love it." Um, <laughs> but. In Chicago, it means something really different. It doesn't have the same sort of kind of... uh, It's almost whitewashed out the actual social context, and it just becomes art. And that's why we said at the very beginning, people can yeah. can take what is intended to be calls to arms and be like, man, this sounds great, because they're not in that context. So I think that's one of the main differences, is that there, when if, if I listen to Stab Stab, um, I, I personally wouldn't feel like I need to go stab anybody because it's, that's, that's not, yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, because there's not a social context that makes this even somewhat reasonable. Right. Like, and we say it's always not justifiable, but it wouldn't even be reasonable. There wouldn't be a reason for me to do that in this particular context. And so I think that, you know, the, the situation, um, the context, as we've mentioned over and over again on the show, the context is really what pushes things either into representationalism or into direct calls to action. Because writing a song about uh, yelling fire in a theater is not the same thing as yelling fire in a theater, um, or the same as playing the song about 
yelling fire in a theater in a theater. Right. Um, because then it gets really confusing. So yeah. I think that the situation matters. And I, to add to that, I would say that there are times when communities, especially communities, for example, like the Palestinian one, could, and I don't think that's what's going on here, but communities like that can sometimes use that sort of verbal or visual expression of violence as a way of expressing that deep-seated emotion and the problems without actually engaging in the violence. And that's a really tricky thing because you might have a community that's chosen to respond by expressing this violence in music rather than expressing it by actually stabbing someone. And so it's a way of dealing with the problem via art rather than via actual violence. And that, I mean... <laughs> so you might think of the song Pumped Up Kicks by Foster the People, which is about school shootings, came out around a spate of school shootings. It's an anti-school shooting song, as at least in how I interpret it and how I feel like it was meant to be interpreted. I could be wrong. But in how the context that I lived in, I saw that and I was like, man, this sucks. We shouldn't be doing this. Instead of being like the opposite. So, you know, there are ways that you can depict violence that are bound in ways that are interpreted differently than go do this. Yeah. And that goes to the point we made starting in the first two episodes of the season, which is as outside observers, there's only so much we can say. Right. But we can and should speak to our own cultures where, right. where it makes sense. Now, to be clear, I also think there's too much violence in <laughs> yes. in everywhere um, as a only we slightly... We can also speak to other right. societies and cultures. Right. Um, <laughs> as an only slightly reformed pacifist, I, am, <laughs> I think there's too much violence everywhere. But in terms of the representation of it and the free speech uh, qualifications that go with it, I think there are yeah. a lot of things to be said. Um, as communication majors, we learn like every day that media is progressing and changing mm -hmm. in our daily day-to-day -day lives. Mm -hmm. So don't you think that even if it wasn't in the music, it would be expressed in a different or broader way? Hmm. That's an important yeah. yeah. So the short answer is yes. Um, right. I think we think it would. But I think that there's something important about art and its distinctiveness from news or its distinctiveness from a, a book report. Or yeah. I think there's something specific about the genre or the genres, or the medium, um, depending on how you want to qualify it, um, that that makes art that espouses violence particularly jarring, mm -hmm. as well as particularly unexpected. Like, we're not writing shocking full-page articles about the fact that, like, uh, Israelis and Palestinians routinely yell horrible things at each other, <laughs> because that's that, that happens all the time. It's not out it's of not the good, ordinary. It's... Yeah, it's, it's, you know... People, people don't write articles about all the planes landing. Like, you know, that's, that's, not, uh, that's not how we roll with the news. So I feel like there's an important distinction to be made between this is – art is generally a thing that's meant to express community values. Right. Um, and when, when one of those community values becomes violence against others, you – It's difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's hard, again, with the reasonable, justifiable thing. There are reasons that this music exists, mm -hmm. and we affirm that there are reasons for it. Um, we are not invalidating the experience of being in that situation at this particular time. But the responses in doing this type of art are jarring yeah. um, to, to people, um, so much so that there's an article that we'll link that says this article about the music should not have even been written um, <laughs> yeah. because it encourages more people to do it. Yeah. And so it, it, art is a very heavily policed thing. It's, it's a community thing, and 
you know, Chris and I think that it's intended to promote beauty because we think that's an important cultural value, but there are other cultural values and there are other cultures. And to that, I would add that sometimes we can say, well, it would happen anyway, just in a different way, as a way of failing to take responsibility for what we're doing and failing to say, well, it it doesn't actually have to happen another way, especially when we think about the way that we end up in feedback loops, vicious or virtuous. And so if the same people were embracing a view instead that said, no, I'm going to turn the other cheek, that would do a different thing and have a different effect in their culture than saying stab, stab would. And and likewise, you know, the, the country song, I'm going to key up your car, while a much more trivial example, what's the difference between that and a song expressing forgiveness? There's a, because art has power and because art always sits in these embodied contexts and et cetera, there are times when we want to express grief or mourning or anger, et cetera, and those are legitimate and in many ways to be celebrated. But I think we have to be aware that we have power and our actions have consequences. And because of the power of art, especially, we want to respond with art in a way that doesn't make things worse. And I mean, that's hard and it's gray and it's it's fuzzy what that plays out as, I think. And and we are being unapologetically prescriptive here. Right. Like, we, are taking, <laughs> we are taking a stance that other people disagree with. Right. And we are fully aware of that. Um, and that's the nature of dis- disagreement about anything is yeah. that you have to be really clear with what you're saying and what you're not saying, and, but then stick it. Like, yeah. This and is and why saying. you say it. Yeah. Right. But I think because of those things, we want to be able to say, well, maybe it would just have another outlet, but maybe it wouldn't. And in hope of that, maybe it wouldn't, let's not. Yeah. And even if it would, maybe we could prevent some of the ills that would go with that expression by coming at it in a different way. But it's a great question. And it's a tough thing. Yeah. So if a piece of art does encourage violence, how do we react to that or stop it without breaching the First Amendment? without preaching freedom of speech. Right. Yeah. That's a really great question. One, the freedom of speech, First Amendment, potentially doesn't apply to Israel or Palestine. (laughs) um, Though we might think it would be good if it did. We hope hope that they have certain rules and certain ethical structures, legal structures that have, you know, uh, checks and balances on on free speech um, because even the First Amendment doesn't allow you to yell fire in a theater, for example. So there is a, a... modicum understanding, modicum of understanding that um, inciting actual harm is not protected. Right. Um, Now, there's a a whole long list of things that (laughs) seem like inciting harm that aren't. Right. um, And and that are protected. That are protected. And so, but responding without breaching the First Amendment is, is... So I I think the... The other half of that is that there are many cultural responses that aren't legal responses. And Stephen and I have talked frequently on the show that too often we turn to legal or political solutions when often what is needed are cultural solutions and changes. And so uh, as we'll link in the show notes uh, an amusing XKCD that points out that people not listening to your music isn't violating your rights. People campaigning for people not to listen to your music isn't violating your First Amendment rights. People saying, no, you can't speak at my private function isn't violating. There are lots and lots of culturally situated responses that don't have anything to do with legal or political responses that are nonetheless perfectly legitimate and valid and don't constitute in any way censorship. Just right. saying, 
no, we don't want that, we're not going to listen to or embrace it, is not censorship and it's not an abrogation of your fundamental right. You've expressed yourself, you've made your music, but no one's obliged to listen to it. And so building and inculcating cultures and institutions that say, honestly, I just want none of that and I won't, I won't listen to it, I won't perpetuate it, etc., I think is a big part of that response. Yeah, and it is kind of tough as people who want to be involved in culture to mm-hmm. say, yeah, I'm just going to quit that part of culture and just <laughs> uh, not do that one anymore. Um, but in some ways, like we talked about last week, uh, you have to say, okay, don't feed the trolls, and <laughs> we're going to yeah. not do that over here. Yep. Now, interacting with that particular type of of art, that particular type of culture making, um, there is the response where you make more culture back at it and you say, uh, uh, this is a song that I wrote in response. Um, you know, you can, on YouTube videos, you used to be able, I think you still can put a response to on your YouTube video. Um, you can tag things in SoundCloud links. Like there's a lot of ways you can put your art back at another person's art. If you really want to engage and you feel strongly that you want to be doing this as part of your culture. Um, and I think that's, Partially how you end up with, um, you know, the KKK being a minority is that people said, hey, we're going to go over here and do this thing and we're just going to like not do the KKK anymore, (laughs) which is essentially how the KKK ended several times um, is that people said, like, we're just going to not do that and we're going to make our own culture over here um, because it's bad. Yeah. Um, But we're going to make our own culture over here. Um, and so I think, I think you have to fight culture with culture if you want to engage, but a lot of people who aren't culture makers, they can just opt out and that's not doing, uh, legal, con- uh, it's, it's not abrogating your legal rights. So now if the government tells you that you can't do it, then we got some <laughs> issues. Um, and then we have like super deep water that we're getting into. <laughs> um, and that's a topic for a different episode, uh, a different episode, but, um, Yeah. Other, other than the government, it's just make culture at culture, I think. So I watch a lot of TV shows. I listen to a lot of music, but I heard a lot about music. So I was wondering, um, it seems like a lot of television shows are tackling more issues of violence recently, specifically the issue of police brutality. Mm-hmm. Um, so two specific shows. I know the cop show that I, my parents love to watch, Shades of Blue, mm-hmm. often puts police brutality issues into their writing. Yep. Uh, from both sides, they show you the police side of it um, versus, you know, the civilian side sides mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but more importantly, one show I watch a lot is um, Blackish, and recently they had an episode related to race relations in America called Hope. And like you touched on with music, where there's you know a song that really touches you, makes you cry, makes mm-hmm. you angry. Mm-hmm. This episode made me feel all of those things. Um, <laughs> yeah. Confused, angry, sad. I cried literally mm-hmm. several times during this episode mm-hmm. um, because I feel the same way that lots of the characters in the show did. Mm-hmm. We're very divided on this issue. Um, I guess my biggest question here is do you think, like India said, other, um, other forms of art are going to kind of move in if music doesn't? Would you consider television shows and writing of those shows a form of art slash propaganda? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and we actually, I mean, just to summarize briefly since we're running out of time, Stephen and I spent quite a while in the prep for the show talking about plays because theater is a very particular, very culturally situated response Mm -hmm. that lots of it just doesn't work for us because of sort of the cultural ideals embodied by a lot of theater right now. But... 
theater, film, TV, books, uh, comics. Comics have done some really interesting stuff mm -hmm. in the last half decade, especially, of mm -hmm. addressing issues that are culturally contentious right now. And so we talked about music because that was sort of the inciting article mm -hmm. for this mm -hmm. and because it's Stephen's specialty. But everything Ooh. we've said today is equally applicable across genres. The, the differences are going to be the particulars and the way they're applied. I mean, mm -hmm. reading a book it's probably going to be more effort to get there. But when you're there, in some ways it might move you more because it's engaging you probably at a deeper and more lasting level. And over so. a longer period of time. And, yep. um, and I also think that music, by dint of being easily developed and easily made in contrast to a television show or a movie that yeah. takes a much longer amount of time and a much bigger number of people to create, I think that music will will be a vanguard on this for a while. But as other technologies come down in price, other technologies become easier to access and easier to use, we may see other forms of propaganda, particularly with the rise of YouTube and the rise of other online sharing sites that, yeah, I think that we definitely will see other types of art uh, drop into this propaganda versus art versus situated cultural problems arena. Great questions, everybody. Yeah, thanks. The music was Half a Second by Hemingbirds. We used it with their permission. Please don't use it without their permission. Thanks again to Andrew Fallows and Jeremy W. Sherman for sponsoring the show this month. Still sponsoring. You guys are awesome. If you'd like to sponsor the show, you can pledge monthly at patreon.com slash winning slowly or give a one-off at cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly. Never gets old. 10% of whatever support you give us still goes to keeping up the Internet Archive because someday, a long time from now, someone will want to find the history of winning slowly I and they'll be some, able to. I hope someone writes a dissertation about it. Wouldn't it be great? If you like the show, please rate and review us in iTunes, recommend us in your favorite podcast app directory, or just tell a friend. You can find show notes for this episode with links to things we talked about, as well as to the music and so on at winningslowly.org slash 4.11. Last but not least, we love hearing from you. Please send us your thoughts on Twitter at Winning Slowly, on our Facebook page, or via email at hello at winningslowly.org. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>